Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now I'll be reading from Galatians chapter 5, 16 through 24. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For, the, desire, for the, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you what, from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, decessions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So part of the Lenten season is reflecting on our struggle with sin, our fight against sin. And maybe just because I'm a dude, as I was reflecting on that, I was actually remembering uh, back when I was in seminary, there was this group of us guys that would go out occasionally and watch um, Ultimate Fighting, UFC uh, matches at this uh, local bar and eat buffalo wings and stuff. And for most of us, it was a time where we could kind of feel like, oh, like we, you know, like we knew what this stuff was about and we would talk about it. But the truth is we were like skinny, nerdy guys, the kind of guys that are like, oh, I'm going to go study theology. You know, we, we didn't really get it. But there was this one guy I remember who would kind of, he went to a seminary with me and he would kind of hold court um, because he had actually done mixed martial arts fighting in an earlier life. He was this huge guy. He had given that up years before, although now his hobby was like blacksmithing, if I remember right, and he had a forge in his backyard, so this big burly guy, but he'd sort of talk, and we'd all listen because we're like, wow, this guy knows what he's talking about, and he'd kind of dispense these life lessons and the guise of talking about experiences doing underground uh, MMA fights, but I remember one of the things he said uh, once he talked about how if you're going to be good at fighting, you have to neither underestimate nor overestimate your opponent. That you will lose a fight if you underestimate or you overestimate your opponent. 
underestimating maybe for obvious reasons, because you fail to train appropriately, because you fail to respect them, keep your guard up, be prepared, but also overestimate them, because uh, then you might just become discouraged and give up, or you might not take uh, openings that you saw because you wouldn't recognize that they were real mistakes that the other guy had made. And I don't know why, but that came to mind tonight as I was reflecting on our struggle with sin. And so this evening, as we prepare ourselves for a time of repentance, I kind of want to just take that theme and use these two passages from the book of Galatians to talk about those dangers when we think about our sin, that we must neither underestimate nor overestimate it, because doing either of those things will cause us to fail in our struggle. So first, and in many ways this is the greatest theme of Lent, or one of the great themes of Lent, But first, we must not underestimate our enemy, sin. It is easy for us to look at sin as something that is smaller or weaker or less pervasive than it actually is. And so what I want to do to help us to not underestimate it is simply walk through what Paul said here in Galatians 5. I just want to note, I decided not to put everything up on the screen tonight because I feel like for an Ash Wednesday service, it's sweet. So if you want to grab a Bible at the end of your pew and follow along or pull out your phone, you're welcome to do that. I know people often just follow along on the screen. But in Galatians 5, uh, Paul gives this call to the Christian life and he does it by contrasting this sort of works of the flesh And then this sort of life in the spirit. And what he's doing in both of those is trying to give us a vision both of the life God creates us for and of all of the ways that we fall short of that. So let's just walk through that. First of all, he talks about the desires of the flesh. And he gives this long list of sins. And I think when we come across those sorts of lists in scripture, it's easy for them to blur together. But let's walk through it. So he kind of goes through these categories in this list of sin. The first sins he names um, are sexual sins. The first four, sexual immorality, and uh, first three, sorry, sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality. There is a sort of reputation that some folks in the world like to purport that the church, you know, kind of focuses weirdly on sexual sins. And as we're going to see in a minute, in some ways, Paul is starting here in order to set, I think, his readers up for a bit of a surprise. But these are real failings and real temptations that we face. Sexual immorality, um, he means by that sort of acts that in a direct way break God's commands about sexuality, belonging within the covenant of marriage, things like adultery. Impurity includes other actions that, you know, might, people might try to plead technicalities or something, but are also included in that sort of um, not God's good design for our sexuality. And sensuality, or some translations say things like debauchery, is probably aimed at the posture of our minds and hearts, where even if we're not doing things outwardly, our minds are viewing those things in warped and sinful way. That's the first category he goes through. But he's just getting started, right? Then the next two sins in some ways are what we could think of as religious sins. So first, idolatry. Obviously, in Paul's world, idolatry was something that might be more obvious than it might seem in our world as there are temples to Zeus and Athena and things like that that people went and prayed for. Idolatry is the worship of things that are not God as if they were gods. But even in Scripture, 
it makes clear that things like greed and covetousness are idolatry. Idolatry is the worship, the, the treating as God of anything that is not God. And then he mentions sorcery, which again is something that in Paul's world probably would have had a more direct image in his people's mind. Sorcery is trying to use and take divine power for yourself. Although even there in our world, while that's maybe one of the more distant ones for a lot of us, like whether it's going into a New Age bookstore or just listening to how certain TV preachers talk about prayer, it does seem like there are plenty of people in our world that are still looking for sort of mantras and tricks to bend the divine. And then Paul shifts into this whole range of social sins, we could call them relational sins. So enmity, which means hatred. Hating another human being. Strife and division, which are both labels for ways that we divide and turn against and separate from each other as human beings. Jealousy and envy, ways that we look at each other and are jealous of what the other person has, that we covet it, that we despise the other person, thinking that we deserve what they have or that they don't. Fits of anger, losing control of our temper or living in simmering bitterness rivalries and dissensions. Uh, those two probably, in the way that Paul writes, they often, those, that language is applied to sort of especially leaders in the church and power brokers and factions and people trying to one-up and compete with one another within the community of faith. And then uh, at the end, he mentions drunkenness and orgies, which might again seem kind of distant from some of our experience and are probably in some ways hearkening back to the beginning of the list, but for Paul also are, almost, are probably caught up in the sort of culture of Rome that is around him. The, interestingly, the civic and political life of Rome actually often involved things like that. And then last in the list, lest we think that you know, you're going to squeeze out, because he didn't mention some specific thing, he says, and things like these also. He, he runs through all of these different sins, and here's the simple question I want to ask us tonight. Um, it, Paul lists all these works of the flesh. Why is he doing that, right? Is this trying to be exhaustive? No, because he ends with the things like these. Does he think that his readers don't know that these are sinful? No. Here's what I think Paul's doing. I think Paul offers this list, first of all, because he means to equate those sins for his hearers in a way that implicates all of them. He says that the works of the flesh, this unified thing, are these. And then he gives this list. And look, no person, no person in Paul's original church. I, I am assuming no person here. And maybe while, while I want this to be a place where we can confess our sins, um, you know, if you really like consistently are doing all the things on this list, I will be impressed. But while no person here or in Paul's church does all of these things, every one of us struggles with some of them. And by giving this broad view of sin, Paul is seeking, first of all, to invite us to recognize that all of these things come from one source. We have this tendency to rank and to split up sins, to say, well, like, I do these things, but I don't do those things, and those are the really condemnable things. And Paul is inviting us in that list simply to recognize that all of those are equally works of the flesh. And so we can't point at others, but all have to stand under conviction. So that's already starting to call us not to underestimate our enemy in sin as we recognize that we all struggle with some of those works of the flesh. We're all tempted to do that. And then in contrast to that, Paul goes even further. He contrasts them with the fruit of the Spirit, 
starting in verse 22. And look, I will acknowledge with what I just said and what I'm about to say, these could be sermon series, right? We're just taking the very treetops view. But the fruit of the Spirit, he says, is first of all, love. Love in Scripture is this overarching idea of us recognizing the goodness and value of others and living lives in such a way that are pouring out for others and elevating others and delighting in others. Living in love means seeking the good of people around us, considering their needs, seeking what's best for them. And then there's joy, which is running the fruit of the Spirit. Joy in the sense of delight in God and in what is truly good. Joy is not necessarily, in the way that Paul's using it here, the opposite of sadness. It might seem strange at an you know, when the lights are turned down and we're reflecting on the heaviness of sin on Good Friday to talk about joy. But joy isn't the opposite of sadness in Scripture. It's the opposite of indifference. It is, um, it is the opposite of failing to appreciate the goodness and beauty and glory of God. And then peace. Here particularly, probably meaning especially peace in relationships with each other. Living in reconciled relationships. Seeking to heal division. Forgiving others. Not needlessly seeking controversies. And patience. Meaning waiting both on God's timing... In our lives when it feels like he's slow to do what we're longing for him to do and waiting on others as it takes time for them to change and work through things and kindness seeking to do concrete good to others uh, particularly uh, blessing and building up the people around us and goodness taking pleasure in what is good seeing righteousness as beautiful and desirable and seeking it and faithfulness, meaning enduring and all the other virtues that he's talking about. And enduring in relationship and not giving up. And gentleness, not being harsh with people, but being, uh, but being gentle and treating them in a way that recognizes their wounds and their fragility. And self-control, not being ruled by our passions, but instead ruling them. Uh, not being driven by our desires and our emotions, but feeling them, experiencing them, but nonetheless living, uh, you know, reigning them in ways that are God-directed and righteous. That's quite a list too, right? And again, that could be a sermon series, but just think about a person who embodies all of those virtues, right? Think about a person who really is consistently that loving, joyful, patient, peaceful, gentle, kind person. Two things striking about that person. One of them is that that looks a lot like Jesus, in many ways, I think Paul draws this list from reflecting on the character of Jesus. But two, for tonight, the thing that strikes me of that list is that I fall far short of being that kind of person. Even if I read the first list that Paul gives and I'm able to say, man, I am, you know, I'm like, there's a couple I'm still struggling with, but I'm doing decently well. Then when I think about, and these are the fruit of the Spirit, and, and I think about that person that fully embodies those, I recognize that I fall far far short of that vision for humanity. And that, again, is part of Paul's point, that while we are seeking to be such a person, seeing the person that God calls us to be and that the Spirit is working to ultimately seek to begin to form in us, seeing that person helps us appreciate the greatness of our sin. The measure of our sin is not just the depth of our vice, but also the deficiency of our virtue. It is not simply um, how far we fall into the things we ought not to do, but how far short of perfect Christ-likeness that we fall. All of which is to say that our enemy is great and bigger than we think. 
that we should not underestimate sin. I think it is too easy, even for people like us, even for people like me at times, to treat sin cavalierly, to treat it as something that does not run that deep in me. That, you know, there's a few things, yeah, that I need to work on, but that on the whole, that's not real. And the reality of sin, our great enemy, is that it it has roots deep in our hearts, that there are shadowy pools, murky pools in our hearts still, that it affects us in all kinds of ways. And in many ways, Lent in particular is a season for us to grapple with that, to feel the weight of that, and to be mindful of that. We, part of why we, we have 40 days, right, of Lent, part of why we set aside a season of the church's life to do this is because it takes some of that real introspection and repentance to appreciate the seriousness of our enemy. So we must not underestimate our foe. But at the same time, we also must not overestimate our enemy. And in some ways, this is the great caution we must hear and the great underpinning we must have if we're going to enter into everything we just said appropriately. Remember, my friend said that if you underestimate your enemy, you're going to lose, but if you overestimate it, you will too, often through becoming discouraged or not really even showing up for the fight. And I think if we focus only on the greatness of sin, that can actually cause us to fail to be able to fight against it. So on the one hand, we need to appreciate its depth and power, but on the other hand, we need to place it in the context of something even greater than our enemy sin, the greatness of the good news of what we have in Jesus. Part of why I think Paul can bring the hammer down so hard in Galatians 5, which that's, that's a heavy text, right? That's a convicting text. Part of why you can do that is because he spent the first chapters of Galatians laying this foundation within which his hearers can hear it. And I want to just focus on one part of that, one part of the way Paul declares the gospel in Galatians 3, which we also read. So I'm going to just start walking through that. He says, now before faith came... We were held captive under the law and imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So by the law, Paul means the commandments of the Old Testament. And he says we're held captive under them. And by that, he actually means this. He means that the law existed to help us not underestimate our sin. That is what it's doing. The law, in many ways, is functioning the way we just used Galatians 5, right? To show us the depth of our sin. Paul says in Romans, he would not have known his sin had the law not opened his eyes to it. But it did not offer deliverance from that sin, which is why it was a form of captivity. And you keep reading verse 24. Paul says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law helped us see our sin, and we need that vision of our sin because that's what teaches us that we can't overcome it on our own, that we can't sort of just earn our way to heaven and become righteous on our own, but that we are therefore out of that. Our hope is that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. By Jesus, we are justified. And what that means about our enemy's sin is that despite its power, it cannot condemn us. It does not have the power to condemn us. It cannot render the verdict of guilty on us. That's what justification means. That because of Jesus, while sin is a reality in our lives, we are not under its condemnation. And then Paul goes on. He says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So while the law is served a purpose, we're not under it anymore, but instead we are sons and daughters of God. So not just that we're justified, but we are, as theologians would put it, adopted 
by God as well. We are adopted into the family of God. And so that means that sin, our enemy, while powerful, not only can it not condemn us, but it also cannot alienate us. It cannot alienate us from God. While we still struggle with it, we struggle with it within the context of our loving Father who delights in us and calls us his sons and daughters. And our sin does not have the power because of the good news of Jesus Christ to break that. Paul goes on in verse 27. He says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So we've put on Christ. Paul's probably picturing like a royal robe that some Roman politician might put on to mark him for office. But more deeply, Paul is using this language that, again, theologians have termed union with Christ, that we are united with Christ. We're actually in Christ, and he is in us. And that means that sin, our great enemy, while it is powerful, not only can it not condemn us, not only can it not alienate us, but also it doesn't get to define us anymore. It is not who we truly are because we are in Christ and that is the core of our identity and he is in us and that defines the central truth of our lives that we are dressed in Jesus and so that is who we truly are and if we look that's just from Galatians 3 if we took Galatians as a whole the Bible as a whole there would be other glorious truths that we could Uh, say as well that by the gospel for example we are being born again we're being regenerated we're given new hearts that aren't ruled by sin and by the work of the spirit and the gospel we are being sanctified and sin has been killed in us through Jesus's cross and in all these different ways God is at work declaring to us that while sin is our great enemy in Jesus Christ it is a defeated enemy as well while sin is our great foe We must never see it as greater than the love and grace of the gospel. We need to not underestimate our sin, but we also need to not overestimate its power over us. Lent, the season we're entering into, is a season of darkness and heaviness because of the things that we reflect on it. But it's really important for us to say first that we're not doing that simply because we want to feel the darkness and the heaviness. We're not those like teenage kids, you know, dressed in black, which I was one of, to be clear. That's just, you know, like the darkness yeah, or something like that, right? That, that we're not doing that for its own sake. It's not that God delights in a dour countenance and a downcast face. Lent exists with its heaviness and its darkness to better help us see the brightness and light of Good Friday and Easter. Lent exists to magnify Easter, and at the same time, we can only, therefore, truly feel the darkness and heaviness of Lent because we know that Easter is coming. That as much as Lent prepares us for Easter, it is that understanding and recognition of Easter that makes this season of repentance and sorrow possible. And that is true of Lent and Easter, but that is because that reflects the fundamental truth of the Christian life. Look, the reason we need to sit with our sin and repent and feel its weight is because otherwise we cannot understand the glory of the things we said about being justified and adopted and united to Christ. That we need to understand the depth of our sin and how far short we fall because that measures the grace and the greatness of God's love for us in the gospel. But at the same time, because of that, you cannot truly enter into that repentance. You cannot truly confront that depth without your heart first being awakened to the reality that you are justified and you are 
adopted, and you are in Christ, and you are being sanctified, and you have been born again, and that you are beloved by God, and that all of those truths promised in the gospel are true. And so this evening, what I want to invite you to do as we prepare for this time of of confession together is this, is to say this to you. Let's, on the one hand, prepare our hearts and really confront that darkness that's in us. Feel the weight of our sin. But let's do that knowing what is true in Jesus Christ and knowing that after we do that, we're going to hear God's words assuring us of our pardon and coming to his table because only as we see the greatness of God's love and grace can we truly recognize how much we need it and confront our sins.